This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Words matter. They move individuals to tears and to action. They make or break communities. So writes Professor Stephen Prothero in his new book, The American Bible. He's professor in the Department of Religion at Boston University, the author of numerous books, and one of the most quoted academics in America. Professor Prothero, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks for having me. You wrote this book and titled it The American Bible. Many people looking at it are going to assume this is mostly about uh, the, the Christian scriptures, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Old and New Testament. Actually, you're using the word Bible in a very different sense. Explain that to us. Right. It's a little more of a religious studies sense, sort of as scripture. So it might have been called American Scripture or American Public Scripture or something like that. The idea is that I'm looking not at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I'm looking at Washington, Lincoln, you know, King, and Jefferson, um, the great expressions in American public life, and not only those uh, those words, but the commentaries on them, which really take up most of the book. So I'm I'm just as interested in what people have said about the Declaration of Independence as I am about the Declaration, or what people have said about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as the, the Gettysburg Address itself. Well, I was really interested in not only the selections you made, uh, but in the process by which you made the selections. And you mentioned this in various interviews and also in the book itself. You were looking for those documents that make a decisive difference in American history and that have what we might call an afterlife. They, they continue to be a part of the American conversation in ways that shape our understanding of ourselves as a nation and as a people. And uh, that must have been a very difficult selection process. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of like uh, creating a canon, right? Like the people who sat down and decided, you know, which Gospels were going to be <laughs> were going to be the four Gospels, um, and, and and so I tried to do that in a fair way, rather than sort of saying, "All right, what are my favorite books or my favorite speeches or songs?" I tried to think about which ones have really mattered, you know, which we as Americans, you know, care enough to to fight about and to to debate. And so I really looked for texts that generated controversy and comments over a, a sustained period of time, and then and then looked for those comments to be about America. So not really about literary theory, you know, like you might have a debate about a novel, you know, you know, telling us about literature, but looking for things that really helped us figure out what America was all about. And then, and that's really how I how I homed in on my on my core texts. A figure like Mark Twain reminds us that we have, each of us, uh, a canon uh, of books and uh, of literary figures and characters that are, are seemingly always with us. And uh, as much as uh, you now have 300 million Americans, you might say each with 300 million different sets of documents walking around in our imaginations, you really were looking at those that have a uniquely unitary kind of, uh, of identity with the American people. And, and when I look at this, I realize you start out with something as, as fundamental as the Exodus story from the Bible, and uh, then you end up with Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. <laughs> yeah, and they're not so far apart because the Exodus story is so foundational to the civil rights movement, the whole idea that we're, we're moving from slavery to freedom, from segregation to... Um, to desegregation and and, uh, and integration, and you know part of the part of what I was interested in as a historian of religion, of course, is the 
you know, the religion angle on this, you know, I, I typically write books that are more clearly about religion. This is more, I think it's shelved in the political science section, you know, in your library or in your, um, you know, local bookstore. Uh, but, but religion plays, a, you know, an important factor. There's sermons here. There's, there's a lot of references uh, to the Bible, and there's a lot of texts like those with King that sort of defy, you know, defy being pushed into a simple genre where you take a speech like I have a dream, you know, that's as much a sermon as it is a, a political argument. You do begin with the Exodus story, and the first section of your book that you identify as Genesis. Uh, talk about, just as an example of the way a text has taken possession of the American character and imagination, talk about how Exodus as a story functioned at the beginning of our national experiment, and then kind of trace it through the, the aftermath and its continuing references that you make very clear. Yeah, well, this is a this is a good example. I mean, here's one case where a book in the American Bible actually is in the Bible. You know, it's the only it's the only biblical story that I that I picked because I do think it's the foundational story. It's it's both Jewish and Christian story, of course. It's the story of Moses and the slavery of the uh, of the Israelites and their liberation um, out of bondage across the Red Sea into freedom and toward Zion and and toward the Promised Land and you know, that story was the story that animated uh, the, the Puritans and the Pilgrims when they came over to the New World, and they left behind the, who, the, the kings of England that they saw as uh, Pharaoh. You know, um, they left behind the religious rulers that they believed were uh, misinterpreting the Protestant uh, tradition, and they, they sought out a Zion, a biblical commonwealth in, in, in the New World. But they weren't the only people who did that. That story was an animating story for slaves in the South who saw the South as Babylon and saw the North uh, as the Promised Land. And it was important to Mormons who moved out West and saw the East as Egypt and saw the West as the, the land of freedom that was promised to them in, in the Book of Mormon. And uh, it animated the feminist movement and it animated the civil rights movement. And uh, so so it's a great example of a story that has an afterlife to go along with the power that it that it has in the Bible itself. You go on to demonstrate furthermore how many of these texts that are so much a part of our public life and public consciousness together also function in ways that can be appropriated by what can only be described as opposing sides in even our nation's greatest conflict, the Civil War, for instance, in dealing with the Exodus narrative. You provide a, a selection from Maria Stewart, an anti-slavery lecturer, who was clearly using the Exodus metaphor to argue for the abolition of slavery. At the same time, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, a Presbyterian pastor from New Orleans, was arguing that the Exodus story was instead uh, most applicable to the Confederacy. Well, that's what makes these uh, American scriptures, you know, rather than Democratic or Republican scriptures, that, that these texts are texts that we, they have a kind of space inside them. You know, great Great texts in literature, and I think great um, scriptures as well, um, have, you know, statements that are, are sort of generalizable outside of their own circumstances, right? So, you know, if, if the Gospel of, of Mark only spoke to people who lived around the Mediterranean in the first century, then we wouldn't have so many Christians in the United States, right? This is a text that speaks over time. And the same with these, uh, these texts, in, in American scripture, that they can be read by Republicans and Democrats in very different ways, and they provide a basis for uh, debate. One of the points that I make 
in the American Bible is that Americans are not held together by any common idea or by even any common creed. We're held together by a common conversation or a common debate uh, about these texts. And I think it's instructive to see how your party, you know, often in the past believed things that your party doesn't believe anymore. And I think that that's actually a healthy thing for Americans to realize the malleability of our own, their own politics, because I think we're so in, enmeshed in some ways now in our own uh, political quagmires, if you want to call it, that we forget that we've had d- debates, and in many cases, in, in constructive debates about a lot of the things that we're fighting about so vociferously now. You include many selected documents and, uh, and, and pieces of literature within your collection, the American Bible. But under the first section, you include some things, well, and frankly, in every section that might surprise us that, uh, that you document and, uh, and defend in terms of the selection uh, in the book. But for instance, in the very first section, you include as one of those texts that defined America, Noah Webster's Blue Back Speller. Talk about that. <laughs> Well, that's one not that many people have heard about nowadays, but if we were around, you know, in the early 19th century, if we were going to school with Abe Lincoln, uh, we would be learning our ABCs from from this book, from, uh, you know, Noah Webster's most famous for his dictionary. But uh, I think he was most influential for creating this speller, which was, we don't even know what a speller is nowadays, but it's the kind of book that you would use to learn how to read. And as you were learning to read, you would also be learning about uh, scripture, because that was included, the b- biblical passages and biblical references were included, but you'd also be learning about American history, and you'd be learning about what Webster referred to as American English. He was very keen on Americans having cultural independence from England, as well as political independence. And so he wrote this speller, which went through numerous editions and sold millions and millions of copies, certainly one of the top 10 best-selling books in American history. Uh, and it, you know, it had an, a cultural, religious, and political influence on America and really helped to bring the nation together. Well, it helped to explain, and, and you demonstrate this in the book, but I also know from other background that it, it helps to explain how, for instance, on the American frontier, we still ended up with a similar language, whereas in Europe, that distance often led to a fundamentally different language group. Yeah, I mean, Webster was hoping for something that didn't actually quite come to pass. He wanted... He wanted an American English that was different from British English, which he accomplished, but he also wanted an American English that was standardized across all the regions, and we don't quite have that. You know, I, uh, you, you sound kind of funny there with your southern accent, right, whereas we speak proper up here in New England, you know, but um, I'm just kidding. But, um, I mean, we do have regional differences a little bit in the way we talk, and, and uh you know, Webster was hoping to flatten that out. And by the way, he was hoping to flatten it toward New England, where he was from Connecticut. So he was trying to educate people from the West and the Midwest and the South to speak in his in his way, and that didn't quite happen. You include a selection of things that are clearly memorable even today. Most Americans are at least familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, certainly familiar with The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Most uh, are, of course, familiar with The Star-Spangled Banner or Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. Fewer might uh, have in mind something such as uh, President Dwight David Eisenhower's uh, farewell address to the nation. But you include that. Right. I see that in uh, among the prophetic books that I include. I, You know, it's most famous, the speech for for uh, his warning about the military-industrial complex, and that's where most of the afterlife is. So you have people who are trying to figure out what Eisenhower was saying as he retired and gave way to John F. Kennedy. Uh, 
he was, by the way, one of our most beloved presidents while he was president, very popular, uh, presided over a period of, of, of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, and he, you know, chose in his final words to say, look, you have to watch out for runaway military spending. And boy, we have a lot more military spending now than, than we did in, in Eisenhower's time. And, and that's been a point of contention both on the left uh, and the right where people have tried to say what was Eisenhower really saying and was he really warning us that we should cut military spending or was he he saying that we just needed to be aware uh you know that that, that when we spent on the military we weren't spending on on other things but I, I i rank that up with washington's farewell address as the two most important you know goodbye letters from from uh, American presidents. It's really interesting that you say that and of course you do include George Washington's farewell address from 1796 in your concluding section epistles but one has to look back at that address and realize that it it was one of the most respected addresses given in American history and one of the least heated. Uh, virtually every major point Washington made was was uh, you might say disobeyed or disregarded by his immediate successors. Yeah, uh, that's such an interesting document. I mean, I was fast. I learned so much in doing the research on that. Uh, I mean, one of the things I say about it is it was an instant classic. I mean, it was immediately revered as the sort of the great words of Washington, the sort of sacred and immortal words of Washington. A lot of the other documents take a long time. Even the even the Declaration of Independence was no big deal for at least a generation after it was after it was published. But but right away, people cared about about Washington, and they noticed things like, um, you know, religion is one of the pillars of government. This is something we hear a lot, um, as you know, from the religious right, looking back to Washington, saying, you know, not saying we should have the strict separation of church and state, but that religion was a pillar of good government, um, warning us about, I think, very presciently about the dangers of loving or hating any nation too much. I mean, he said we need to be careful here. Don't get into alliances that are too close with anybody and don't start to hate anybody too much because that just draws you in away from your own um away from your own self-interest and then i think maybe most importantly his third major point there was to talk about the dangers of party he talks about the mischiefs of the spirit of party and how people will kind of by nature uh feel pulled into a allegiance with their political party and start to put the interests of their party against the interests of the nation. And he said, we've got to be careful. We can't do that. Included in the selections that are published in the American Bible with your commentary and uh, also your historical analysis are documents such as Supreme Court decisions, Brown versus Board of Education and Roe v. Wade. And I want to credit you, by the way, with uh, putting in an extremely balanced representation of responses uh, to these documents uh, over time. You include prophetic statements, as you identify them, uh, uh, with Thoreau's civil disobedience and uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, Malcolm X, the autobiography. Uh, You also include, uh, well, you call them proverbs, such things as Ronald Reagan's evil empire speech, uh, juxtaposed, you might say, with uh, John F. Kennedy's inaugural address and and FDR's uh, I Pledge You, I Pledge You to a New Deal for the American People address of 1932. Then you go backwards in time, you go forward, uh, and uh, you end up with a rather comprehensive list, and I can't imagine that many people who are critics would complain about any selection that is found here, but I think we all might have things we'd wonder, like for me, uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address, that uh, something that didn't find its way in here. What agonized you to leave out? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I have been criticized 
both from the right and the left for things I included. Uh, you know, the Boston Globe thought I was too uh, too conservative, for example. So um, I did try really hard, both in the in the cortex themselves and then in the commentaries, to have a balance where where the the, the whole conversation was represented. You know, so I'm I'm grateful that you uh, that you noticed that. I you know I wanted to I I did end up including. Kennedy's inaugural um, in the book, but only, as you said, as a proverb. And the proverb section are just one-liners, phrases or sentences. So I just included, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But I had wanted to include the whole speech, which has a lot of wonderful language, including uh, Kennedy's observation that civility is not a sign of weakness, something I think we need to, we need to remember, remember today. Uh, I, I did do a chapter on Longfellow's um, Paul Revere's ride that I ended up cutting that I had you know was totally done it was written and I was trying to make the book a little shorter and a little less expensive you know and <laughs> so we had to cut some things and there goes and I my ended childhood up cutting, cutting Longfellow I, I I cut Walt Whitman I I wanted to have Walt Whitman in there I think he I think there's a lot of controversy about Leaves of Grass and mo- a lot of the controversies about America you know and uh, American democracy and what is democracy so I thought that was something important. And then there's a lot of novels. I, I only included three novels, uh, the two you mentioned, Uncle Tom's Cabin and Huck Finn, and I also included Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And, uh, you know, I didn't do things like Grapes of Wrath. That would have been important, I think, to to include. But it's a one-volume book. And it's not an encyclopedia, so I had to make, make some choices. As I said, there goes my childhood. Uh, I still remember <laughs> my father sitting on the edge of my bed when I was just really small reading me Longfellow's uh, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. And uh, I can still remember it. And uh, so it's, it's amazing how these documents, the ones included and the ones that you could wish or anyone who's reading the book might wish will be included uh, – how they have taken on such meaning for us. I want to ask you one last question about the book, and that is, what was your favorite discovery? What 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 discovery did you did you make concerning one of these documents uh, that that brought you the greatest satisfaction? I think the thing I discovered that I thought was most hopeful for me, and, and that I discovered not in one document but many, is a, a great tradition of conciliation in American public life. We're at a moment right now in our politics where it's pretty nasty. Uh, both on the left and the right, and it reminds me of, you know, worse times, like the election of 1800, which was so angry and bitter on both sides. You know, what I found in, in these texts wasn't just what I see as wisdom, but I also found, you know, a way of doing public debate, a way of doing public disagreement that um, that is both civil and informed, and I think that, that we're missing that, and, and I think you see that in Lincoln, you see that Certainly in Washington's uh, farewell address, uh, you see it in Martin Luther King. And I think that was, uh, that's always wonderful to see. You know, the work of a historian is often kind of depressing (laughs) um, because uh, human beings are sinners and they do some things that are pretty bad. Uh, But that that was something hopeful and that kind of kept me going and pulled me through as I was working on this project. The selections chosen by Professor Prothero for his book, The American Bible, are sure to prompt a lot of debate, but after all, that's how they arrived in this book in the first place. They are the topics of our national conversation, and as very often is the case, a real live national debate.
In 2006, my guest Stephen Prothero wrote, In the United States, religion matters. In overwhelming numbers, Americans believe in God, pray, and contribute their time and money to churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples. As much as race, gender, ethnicity, or region, religious commitments make individual Americans who they are. The significance of religion is not confined, however, to self-identity and the private sphere. In the United States, religion is as public as it is pervasive, as political as it is personal, and so it has been for a long, long time. Professor Prothero, when you look at the American religious landscape in the year 2012, what do you see? Well, I see that still. You know, I think most interestingly now we have the, a kind of a, a our first post-Protestant uh, election cycle where we have a Mormon, two Catholics, uh, and, and a Protestant who are contending for, you know, the slots of president and, and vice president. I, I think that's pretty fascinating. And I think we see a robust uh, public square in terms of the religion conversation, even especially in the last couple of days. Now that Mitt Romney seems like he's a, he's willing to start speaking really for the first time about his his Mormon faith. So I think we're up for debate about Catholic values and whose Catholic values are more Catholic or more biblical. Um, and, you know, is Mormonism okay for an American president? What is this religion? And, and how do Catholicism and Mormonism square with the with the Protestant values that have typically guided American public life in the past. This nation was consistently led by what could only be described as a white uh, Protestant leadership, uh, European in terms of its identity of origin and and cultural alliance. And and now we've reached the point where on the United States Supreme Court there isn't a single Protestant. Uh, where in terms of our national political leadership, we're really not that surprised to to have a Mormon and a Roman Catholic on a ticket uh, over against a party on the other side that has a Roman Catholic uh, and someone from an Af- African-American Protestant tradition. It's, it's, it's a very different America we see right before our eyes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a little bit of a puzzle to try to figure out, you know, I think the obvious way to go with that is, oh, the decline of Protestantism. You know, Protestantism is in trouble. But, you know, you look at the Congress and three-quarters of the Congress is Protestant and, and uh, Protestants are overrepresented. Um, in the Congress, vis-a-vis uh, their numbers in in, in American, um, you, you know, in individual homes and among American adults, and still the way we talk about a lot of things in public are pretty Protestant. And evangelicals certainly have, you know, continue to have an important voice, uh, not just I don't think in the Republican Party. So, um, you know, it's certainly not a post-religious moment. I'm not really sure it's a post-Protestant moment, but I. I think it's an intriguing uh, time that we're in, where things are kind of up, you know, up for grabs, and and uh, and we don't really quite know how to speak in public anymore about religion, at least in the simple-minded ways that we have have in the past. The American academic establishment has been committed for for a long time to a worldview that that they were certain would uh, indicate the receding public influence of Christianity, specifically in religion in general. And uh, the, the the increasing secularity of the American people, it just hasn't turned out that way. You watch these things so carefully. Why would you argue it didn't turn out, at least thus far hasn't turned out, as uh, as the prophets of the secularization theory had, yeah. had foretold? Well, you need to give um, us academics a little more credit there in the sense that um, I think the sociologists of religion were wrong in terms of their their uh, convergence around secularization theory. But, you know, a lot of them, like Peter Berger, for example, who was a colleague of mine at Boston University, probably the most 
pronounced of the secularization theorists gave up on that quite some time ago and said, you know, I was wrong and and religion isn't going away. And I think even even the selection, one reason why I don't like the post-Protestant label so much is because uh, it kind of implies a sort of secularization. That's not what's going on. You know, it isn't like the Protestants are being replaced by atheists on the Supreme Court and by agnostics in the Congress. They're uh, you know, what we have are Catholics and, and Mormons and Protestants uh, sort of mixing it up, and we have, you know, Hindus now and, and Buddhists in the public space. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I think the simple answer, the theological answer is, well, maybe there's a God, right? And then I think the other answer, the more religious studies answer is, well, um, religion is just a part of, of human life, and it, it doesn't get chased out very easily. And, you know, we have really only one place in one moment in world history, and that's modern Western Europe, where secularity has really uh, flourished. And uh, so, you know, I just don't see religion going away in American life, and, and certainly the idea that as societies become more modern and more technological, that they're going to give up on God, that's being refuted pretty, pretty uh, profoundly in American life today. Well, and I appreciate your your candor on that. And by the way, I'm, I'm glad to say we had Professor Berger as a guest on this program uh, on Thinking in Public. And and one of the things I I want to uh, to say about my appreciation for Peter Berger is not only that he was one of the pioneers of the secularization theory, but uh, as as early as the as the late '80s and the mid '90s, he was already reconsidering it. And uh, actually, by the way, published an article entitled "Secularization Reconsidered" because see, he had the intellectual honesty to come back and look at it. But you know, in that conversation, he also indicated that. There, there are a lot of, of, uh, of sociologists who think that they must have been wrong on the timetable, not on the fundamental dynamic. But, uh, but you don't think it's just a timetable? Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think there are – I think sociologists are now divided over this. And I think that, that some of them are um, – and, and I know the sociologists mostly in America and the United States. And I think that those, those people are um, pretty well divided around the secularization theory. I think there's still – effort to rehabilitate it and turn it into something else. Like, well, okay, religion isn't really going away, but there's a loss of religious authority in certain key sectors of, of key societies, right? So you, you can see some secularization in the United States clearly in, in the law, and you see it clearly in entertainment. If you turn on television, you're not going to see on the major networks Christian television shows. So there's a, there's a kind of a secularity that's happening in Hollywood and on television and, and in the law um, that you don't see elsewhere um, in, in American life, like in literature, for example, where there's a lot of a lot of Christian influence still in in uh, in literature. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a division among sociologists. I think that some of them are looking at what I see as pretty you know powerful data that you know atheists are maybe two to six percent of the American public life. That's not very big. And it's not growing. It doesn't seem to be changing. And added to that sociological analysis, I, I, I would have to affirm Berger's insight that the American academic community has been perhaps the most thoroughly secularized of all. Again, not saying all academics are secular. Yeah. It's no, simply I saying the culture. True. And I think Berger adds, I think those are Berger's three areas that he, he speaks about is entertainment, law, and academia. And I, and, and I think that's right. I think that is shifting. I think there's been a lot of pushback, especially by evangelical academics. Um, and, you know, we do have evangelicals now who are running, you know, major research universities. Um, you know, we have um, Harvard Divinity School is now being run by someone who's an expert in evangelicalism. So um, so there's changes that are uh, happening in, in, in academia. But I agree. I think it's definitely more secular than uh, than 
the rest of the United States. Something very interesting has been noted not only by sociologists and, frankly, by observers of the American religious scene, but but those who are trying to uh, orchestrate uh, political campaigns. And that is in the last couple of presidential elections for certain and uh, and perhaps to a greater degree than has been recognized and even some before that, it turns out the religious identification is the singular most important indicator of the direction of an individual's vote. We're in a 2012 presidential campaign. How do you explain that? What do you make of that? Well, I think I, my understanding of that data is that the indicator that's powerful is how often you go to religious services. So it isn't so much, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? What are you? It's more, Absolutely. how religious are you? Right, how religious are you? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that's up for grabs. I think that's up for grabs. I think that what happened was, and I'll try to do this fast because it's sort of a complicated history, but I think what happened was the Republican Party and, and conservatives more broadly were able to position themselves as the values, God, Bible, Christian kind of party. And the Democrats allowed that because they just were holding on to this old Jeffersonian separation of church and state idea that religion was private and you weren't supposed to talk about it in public. That was, you know, what John Kennedy talked about in 1960, how he might have been Catholic, but it wasn't going to affect him as a politician. And that just was a losing strategy. You know, as, as I, you know, have said before, you know, why would you want to be the party that wasn't interested in God in a country where 95, 98% of the people believe in God. It doesn't make any sense. Just politically, it doesn't make any sense. And I think the Democrats have gotten that message over the last five to eight years, and, and I think they are talking much more consistently about the Bible and about God, and they're trying to connect their views about tax policy to the Gospel of Luke and their views about immigration policy to the Good Samaritan story. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if that you know, has some value in this election in terms of having people say, like, I think we see with the Catholics now, you know, we have, we don't have a non-Catholic in Joe Biden and a Catholic in Paul Ryan. We have two different Catholics. We have the social justice Catholic and we have the family values Catholic. And um, so I'm not so sure it's going to go the same way this time. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to, and I'm sure consistent churchgoers are going to vote more Republican than Democrat, but I don't think that God gap is going to be quite as big this time. It'll be but very I, interesting know, to could, see. Yeah, It'll yeah. be very interesting to see, because just to push back a little bit, I, th- I think that the Democratic Party, not to make this a partisan, but to try to be objective in looking at this, I, I think it became the party that largely embraced what Berger called Eurosecularity, and, and at least in terms of many of its uh, public pronouncements and all the rest, and uh, several observers have noted that when you look at the cultural, ideological, I would say theological divides in America, a political divide, uh, they're, they're amazingly deep and stark now. So that it's uh, – it'll be interesting to see if the use of that kind of biblical language and biblical imagery can bridge that gap or, or if indeed the positions themselves are, are now the issue. Right. And I just, I, I just think that in the past, the Democratic line was we're not going to talk about religion because it's inappropriate in the public square. You know, you can be religious. You can be religious in your private life, but we're not allowed to do it in public. And I think they've really given up on that. I mean, Obama's given up on that. Hillary Clinton's given up on that. I think there was a clear decision that was made um, after the 2004 election that 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 one reason why Kerry lost was because his refusal to talk about God. And 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 Obama talked consistently about God when he was running last time. He goes to the prayer breakfasts. There's a lot of argument now about um, 
about tax policy that's very religious from the left. You know, that it, would Jesus really cut Medicaid? You know, would Jesus really cut Medicare? Is that what Jesus would do? And I, I, I think that's going to resonate. You know, it's not just made up out of, out of whole cloth. Um, so, but, you know, who knows? I, I could be wrong. You know, we'll find out after the election to what extent things have changed there. There are a couple other things I just really want to ask you about. One of them is that when you look at America today and and you you look at its historical progression and you also look at future projections where we're going, there is no doubt that immigration is playing a major part. How is the most recent wave of immigration going to be changing the American religious landscape? Well, that's a huge question. I mean, you know, most of the immigration to America is not – you know, from Asia, which is what I studied when I was a graduate student and wrote about early on in my academic career. Um, it's mostly coming from from Mexico, you know, and it's actually largely Catholic and Hispanic and relatively conservative religiously. But then we have also this other wave from Asia, which tends to be uh, more secular um, than the rest of America, um, more Hindu and Buddhist, obviously, but also a lot of evangelicals. You know, we at Boston University, we have a lot of Korean students, and, and they are fired up evangelicals, and they're, um, they're bringing that kind of, you know, style of heartfelt evangelicalism to the United States. So I think in some way it's more the same. You know, we've, it, we talk about the United States as a nation of immigrants, and to be a nation of immigrants is to be a nation of religions and of, of sort of constantly new uh, impulses in American life. Uh, one reason why the Catholic Church is not receding badly, because it's losing a lot of, you know, uh, native-born birthright Catholics, is because of immigration from South America, that they, they're kind of keeping Catholicism above water, and because they're excited about their faith. So I think it's a really interesting time in American life in terms of uh, religion and, and immigration. I think there's a lot of different stories that are kind of crisscrossing one another. Yeah, you hit at something that's very interesting. I believe it was the uh, the, the French uh, uh, historian and, and thinker Jean-Francois Ravel who pointed out that when you look at patterns of immigration, there's a huge distinction now between the immigration that's taking place in, in continental Europe and in the United Kingdom versus that of the United States. The United States has people coming into it, largely, as you said, from uh, Central and South America, Mexico in particular, who hold to a worldview that is is far more consistent with that uh, of the host nation than than what you have in Europe. And and Ravel pointed yeah. out that that is a huge cultural asset for the United States. Right, and the, and the kind of the kind of problems that you have with say you know Muslim immigration into France. You know, that's just, those are like 180 degrees in, in some respects. That's the kind of clash of civilization model that people have been talking about. You know, because France isn't really very Catholic. I mean, it's very secular. So you have, you have you know, uh, the religion clash, but then you also have, you know, religion versus secularity there, but you also have the Islam versus Catholicism. And, and yeah, I mean, Mexican Catholicism isn't the same as, you know, New England Protestantism. Um, but but there's a shared uh, Christian heritage there, and I think that I think that that makes things a little bit simpler. There's also language issues, right? That 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 we have that a lot of our immigration um, is coming from Spanish speakers, but there's a fairly quick integration into speaking English here in a way that doesn't necessarily happen in France, or that makes the French more worried when people don't speak French, um, you know, right away. So um, I, I agree. I think that the um, the kind of tensions that immigration can cause religiously, culturally, um, aren't as powerful here 
Um, but yet, you know, we have a lot of debate now in our politics. One of the top five issues for many Americans is still uh, is still immigration. Finally, I want to ask you to uh, to do something for us here. Speaking to uh, American evangelicals in particular, there'll be others who are listening, but speaking to American evangelicals, uh, what would you say to us? What, what is our placement in the culture now? So speaking as one who is in a unique position and uh, with unique expertise to, to kind of see us uh, from, from, from afar, who are we? How do we fit in America today? And what do you think are really the great challenges for evangelical Christians moving into the future? Well... You have a fondness for asking big questions here, don't you? Um, I'll answer that big question in a small way, since um, I may not have time to fully do, do justice to it. But, I mean, I think one of the challenges has to do with Romney. You know, I, I think evangelicals have largely voted Republican in recent years. Um, they did so with gusto with Bush, because Bush was one of their own. You know, Bush was kind of... A, a real clear born-again guy, you know, who had a born-again story to tell about having been a drunk and having turned around and accepted Jesus. And and I think one of the interesting challenges for for evangelical voters is this, you know, is Mormonism Christian? You know, is Romney a Christian? Are evangelicals going to get behind like a non-Christian candidate um, because he shares our values more than the Christian candidate? I think that's a really interesting problem, and I've been asking my evangelical friends about that in, in, re, in recent days, you know, um, you know, how does that parse out? Does that mean your religion doesn't really matter that much, that you're willing to vote for a guy who may not be a Christian? Or does it mean that in the political realm what you care about is political things, and in the religious realm you care about religious things? Um, so, I don't know. Those, are, I guess that's not a proclamation. That's a little more of a question or or um, a challenge of sort of like which hat or which side of the hat yeah. are uh, evangelicals, um, you know, uh, pointing forward? Is it the political or is it the theological? Well, as tempting as it would be to make that an entirely new conversation, I'm simply going to have to move to the next question and and and, uh, and leave it where you've left it. But the next question is generationally. I think there are many of us who are looking at generational transitions in America. But in particular, uh, I know you've had some insights about these kinds of evangelical transitions in terms of American religious groups. Speak to us again about American evangelicals. What does that look like for us? Well, you know, a lot of young people, I mean, evangelicals are doing a relatively good job of hanging on to young people. You know, they're doing a much better job than Catholics. Um, Mormons are also doing a very good job of that. Uh, They're doing a much better job than mainline Protestants. Young people are also fleeing there. So I think in terms of, you know, the millennials, in terms of uh, young people, I think evangelicals are doing a pretty good job. I think the challenges are society's moving away from, for example, very quickly young people are moving toward acceptance of uh, homosexuality in a way that would have shocked a lot of evangelicals at least a generation ago, and maybe even, you know, and still do. And similarly, I think there's a challenge around the question of the relationship between Christianity and the world's religions, because I know my students at Boston University who are not, you know, the best cross-section, but even the evangelicals there are open to the idea that there's truth in other religions, not that there's truth with a capital T and that there's something defective about Christianity, but that there's something useful about talking with other religions. So I guess I would say... I see young people as moving quickly uh, toward uh, broader acceptance of homosexuality and toward uh, 
uh, more pluralism in terms of the world's religions. And I think those are both challenges for evangelicals to, to deal with in the, in the coming generation. The mark of a good conversation is that there are more issues to be discussed than we can possibly get to, and that's always the case when I'm in conversation with Professor Stephen Prothero of Boston University. Professor, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. It's invaluable to us from time to time to look at America's religious landscape the way that academics look at it, those in the field of of religious studies, those who are looking at it not confessionally, but rather just in terms of an historical, statistical, demographical, and, uh, of course, worldview layout as well. And that's part of what makes the work of Stephen Prothero so interesting. Many people looking at the title of Professor Prothero's most recent book, The American Bible, might wonder what exactly it is. After all, we know the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, and we as Christians understand it to be none other than the inerrant, infallible, divinely inspired Word of God, uh, the selection of which in terms of the canon of Scripture was guided by none other than the Holy Spirit. That's not what Stephen Prothero is talking about in the American Bible. He does include some scriptural citations, of course, but what he's looking at here is the collection, indeed the canon of documents that have become very central to the American conversation over the history of the American experiment. When you look at a book like this, uh, most of us will look at it with immediate interest. The first question would be, what's included, what's left out? But as you look at this book, you'll come to understand that every single one of the selections that Professor Prothero made is justified by the fact it is a part of our national conversation. And if it's not a part of the conversation of which any individual reader has been a part, it probably will be or should be over time. Of course, one of the admissions that Professor Prothero makes is that there is no comprehensive set. There is no definitive canon of these documents, at least nothing that could be contained in a book. America has been a nation in a constant conversation from the very beginning. If you heard Professor Prothero make the point, he said, we don't have a national creed. He suggests we're not even drawn together by a national idea, but we are drawn together by a national conversation. And any book like this that helps us to have a better informed, more thoughtful, more civil conversation is indeed a contribution not only to our knowledge, but also to our our cultural health. I think many Americans reading this book will find it interesting just in terms of the history of these documents, their afterlife, and, and their influence. I think Christians looking at this book in particular we'll be reminded of the fact that there are many documents that are actually essential to our our public conversation, to our national identity, and even to our personal identity as American Christians that actually do not come from the Scriptures but from something else. I think one of the most helpful theological insights from reading this book comes in the point when we realize there are all kinds of influences that come into our lives. There are all kinds of documents that live in our heads. There are all kinds of narratives and stories that are in our imagination. It is the Christian responsibility to respect those and to be in conversation with those. But, after all, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura reminds us that Scripture alone is the final sufficient judge of these things and is to be the establishing center and foundation of our worldview, that which is not checked by any other authority. But we are human beings, embedded in our own time, embedded in our own culture, and without apology, we are a part of a conversation that includes so many of these different documents— And it's good to have a conversation about them because it makes us think about them, to think intentionally and hopefully even somewhat objectively about the meaning of these documents in our lives. 
the historian in you is going to love this book because of the the aftermath, the afterlife of these documents, how Professor Prothero traces how each of these particular literary selections, or even, as he says, right down to a line such as the evil empire comment by former President Ronald Reagan, how, how that enters into our cultural conversation in ways that come up again and again and again, generation and generation to come. I will tell you that my favorite part of the conversation was when we turned to Professor Prothero's analysis of American religion today, and that is one of the hottest issues. And the reason is, as we discussed, because many Americans, especially those in the intellectual elites, in the academic class, in the cultural creatives, however you define them, they're absolutely shocked that we're still having this conversation. It it, it was to them and is to them a tremendous surprise and even an intellectual scandal They were still talking about the influence of religion in American public life. Evangelical Christians often talk to each other about ourselves without pausing to see how we look or how we appear to those who are outside of American evangelicalism. That's why someone like Stephen Prothero, a professor at Boston University, and and one of the leading academics in America who's looking at us not as an insider, but rather looking at us from his vantage point, as one who's skilled in what are called uh, religious studies, the, the academic discipline of religious studies can look at us. We need to listen to some of the things he said. Uh, we need to listen to the fact that America, in terms of its trajectory and the influence of immigrants and the coming into this country of so many others and different cultures, is presenting a fundamentally changed mission field for American evangelical churches. We know that, we sense that, but it is important that that be affirmed over and over again. The America that we knew when we were growing up, the America of our grandparents and our great-grandparents, even our parents, frankly, the America that we knew just five years ago is not the America that we're going to know in the present or in the years ahead. And that's where American evangelicals had better recalibrate our understanding of America, not so much in terms of political questions, but of missiological questions in terms of our responsibility to reach Americans with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I ask him that question about generational transition. And I think Stephen Prothero is on to something when he says that evangelicals, along with a few others, have been more successful than Catholics and mainline Protestants in holding on to our own young people. But that's not something we can rest upon as an assured thing. The responsibility of every generation is to pass the faith on, to pass the faith on faithfully and intact, and to pass it on with passion that will animate a generation to come. The issues that he raised in particular of homosexuality and religious pluralism, many looking both within and without the movement have noted that those are going to be two of the greatest stress points as we think about what it means to maintain the faith once for all delivered to the saints, looking at the evangelical generation to come. That's a wake-up call for us all, and it's the fruit of a good conversation, the kind of conversation we hope to have every time we meet together for Thinking in Public. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Stephen Prothero, for thinking with me today. Before leaving, I want to make sure you know about the first annual Expositor Summit, a conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary October 30 through 31 of this year. The theme of this year's conference is Preaching in a Post-Everything World. Please join John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and join me for this annual conference. We'll look forward to seeing you there. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.